and welcome to the MacGyver Report, Wisconsin This Week, the weekly podcast of the MacGyver Institute. Whether it's interviewing the newsmakers of the day, reporting on the truly important stories that you just won't see in the mainstream media, or bringing you the latest cloak and dagger capital intrigue, the MacGyver Report is here to keep you up to speed on all things Wisconsin. From our palatial offices right here on Madison's Capitol Square, we bring you the stories that really matter to you, the taxpayer, and give you our incredibly expert analysis and unfaltering insight that you can only get, or so we hope, from Team MacGyver. And now, fueled by Dayquil, NyQuil, Tamiflu, <laughs> green beer, whatever you got to fix what ails us, because, man, we were a mess last week, <laughs> flu-wise and whatever they threw at us. It's Team MacGyver. My name is Anderson Cooper, very upset by my lack of uh, TV time now, cutting back. No, I'm Matt Kittle, and I'm an investigative reporter here at MacGyver News Service. And I'm Bill Osmolsky, MacGyver News Director. Yes, uh, sorry that there was no podcast last week, but it would have been really painful to listen to. It was like a um, sick asylum. Like a Charles Dickens novel, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, there was there wasn't enough uh, Dayquil and whatever we are all taking to you know to survive this flu or whatever. And I will uh, say that the smell of Vicks vapor rub was quite heavy in the office. <laughs> I don't want to get yeah. into that. But. Yeah, it w- it would have been a pretty grim podcast. Um, <laughs> so we got plenty to talk to talk about this week. We've got um, the the very tail end of the legislative session and uh, the potential special session, depending on how they handle that. So we've got the student walkout, education results. Eric Holder was in Wisconsin last week. Um, stories about the DOT, the VA, all kinds of uh, great stuff happening and not such great stuff happening in this state. So. <laughs> Joined by, and we've got our great crew here to help us uh, go through all these items. Ola Lasowski, education and tax reporter. And Chris Rochester, communications director. Uh, all of us, I think, are rec- recovering from something. At the city <laughs> I table. was sick first. You were. I think so, you got us yeah, all thank sick. You. I believe you brought it. Yeah, yeah I brought it I'm here. My boyfriend gave it to me. Then I got sick. So, like, I've been fine for a while. <laughs> I'm just watching <laughs> the only one every in full last health. one of my colleagues go down like dominoes. <laughs> Well, Sorry, guys. <laughs> well, uh, if you if you happen to get sick too, you can listen to the MacIver Report on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, or Google Play. Just hit subscribe, and we will make sure to notify you every time we post a new podcast if we're healthy enough to record one. <laughs> That's right. This is like our like 18th or 19th episode, so you could wow. really go through those archives. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's no reason to... flies. Wow, guys. Sickness is not an excuse to remain ignorant. It's an opportunity. (laughs) That's exactly right. And remember, the podcast that you are about to hear has restorative healing powers. (laughs) The power to inform. These claims not tested by the FDA. (laughs) All right. Ola, did you introduce yourself? She did? I did, yeah. Oh, okay. Hey, you're is still Ola. clearly... Did, did, did Chris Rochester <laughs> introduce himself? Yes, he did. He also forgot to say you can follow us on the Mac- on Twitter at, at MacIver Report is our Twitter handle, so please okay. be sure to do that. And follow us up, you know, you, you, we won't get you sick by by Twitter proxy, we promise. No, this is a germ-free different kind of Different kind of sick you get from Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's for sure. Okay, so uh, th- let's get to the uh, material. Sure, yeah. <laughs> 
the meat, as it were. That's right. So uh, first thing I mentioned was the end of the legislative session. That would be the state Senate is scheduled to meet on Tuesday. And uh, they still have a number of uh, bills to take up that were passed from the assemblies. So some bi- some of our uh, big leg- liberty legislative items that we've been following, uh, direct primary care, uh, local preemptions for labor rules, uh, the $50 million rural uh, annual rural uh, economic grants, mm-hmm. uh, child tax credits, sales tax holiday, the uh, federal conformity uh, law. Uh, Long see. day in the Senate on Tuesday. Yeah. Oh, yes. I still got a couple more to go. Let's yeah. see. I've got um, uh, uh, Juvie Justice and um, the surprise bill from the end of the assembly, the That's tailgating right. ban. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. An apprenticeship in there as well. Oh, okay. Lots of stuff. This is going to be an exceptionally long day, and we haven't even gotten to the fact that the uh, state Senate says that whatever it deals with uh, in terms of school safety, it will deal with on that very long day already. Right. The Assembly, of course, has said it will call, uh, it will uh, convene a special session, as the governor has asked it to do, asked the legislature to do. But the Senate says, no, we can take care of whatever we're going to do on school safety right here on on Tuesday. So we have an interesting situation because the Assembly Committee on Education will be meeting, hosting a, holding a public hearing Tuesday at 10 a.m. with all six of those bills on uh, on school safety to run through them really quick. We have school safety grants, an Office of School Safety and DOJ, mandatory suspected violence reporting, uh, model bullying policy, school safety plans for every school to have one and to provide it to DPI and DOJ, as well as them being able to access and share school camera footage in the case of some kind of an incident. So the assembly is going through these motions. They're going through the process and they're going to start that process Tuesday at 10 a.m. with what I'm sure will be a very, very long hearing. Meanwhile, on the other side of the building, just an hour later, the Senate will be meeting. And so what we're understanding is whatever the Senate is going to do on this issue will be tacked on as an amendment to some other piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. Because as we've heard many times, they're not coming back, folks. This is it. And who's laying odds that the Senate is going to get started at 11 o'clock? These things never happen when they're supposed to. And therefore, they keep going and going like the legislative energizer bunnies they are (laughs) well and the other thing too is if they're going to tack this on to one of the bills that they're already planning on bringing up right well that means that that bill is then going to have to be sent back to the assembly again for them to vote on it and they don't want to vote on any regular special uh, any regular session bills so um yeah i can't imagine the senate make you know making this easy on the assembly well i don't want to belabor the point but chris you know um from your sources and i've certainly heard enough from mine we all have Uh, And what we've seen in the reporting elsewhere is confirming it, that there is no love loss at this point between assembly leadership, at the very least, and Senate leadership. They disagree on a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff right before the end of this session, right before they hit the old campaign trail. What are you hearing from your sources about the back and forth going on now between the Senate and the assembly? And the vast differences of opinion on juvenile justice and some of these other key pieces of legislation. Well, what I've heard is um, a lot of frustration that uh, going into an election year, 
where the Republican, the rank and file Republicans are interested in, you know, keeping their jobs because they're facing a potential uh, Democrat wave. Uh, they're especially worried now with Pennsylvania in the books, the Democrat winning in a Trump plus 20 seat. They're really looking like, boy, we don't want to look like the Washington Republicans who seem like they're not able to get anything done. And, you know, this last minute, you know, game of chicken between the two houses is, is I think, is, sounds to me as frustrating with a lot of people in a lot of these offices wondering, why can't we just pass these priorities, especially the school safety package? Uh, why can't we just pass a bill, you know, the same bill in, in both houses and get it to the governor's desk? Why all the gamesmanship? And don't forget that the school safety package, which <clears throat> comes up at some level this week for both houses, has a pretty hefty price tag on it all, too. Now, the short answer to that is um, we as a state, and certainly we parents, are willing to pay for the safety of our kids. But there's a $100 million price tag on it, and that means right. they've got to find $100 million in this budget. Right. That means finding, shifting some money around and doing what they need to do to get this thing done. There's also other legislation to this week, Bill, that's coming up. We had, we've been tracking this, our conservative legislation, yeah. free market legislation, liberty legislation. Some will make it, some simply will not. Uh, one bill in particular that won't make the cut, we find out uh, as we broadcast today, is a very important free market fix to the mess that Obamacare left us, and that is direct primary care. My capital sources are telling me today this does not have a prayer. My understanding is that Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald is listening to the folks, the HMOs, hate this bill with the intensity of 10,000 red-hot suns. And it uh, looks like this thing is dead on arrival in the Senate. Uh, it will be maybe one of the first up next go-round in the next session, but it's gone for now. Well, right. That's really a real bummer because... Direct primary care is kind of a, a cornerstone of free market reform for health care. And uh, we're going to be stuck with uh, with the status quo for a while because really what this bill, all, all it did was define direct primary care in the law as saying it's not a form of insurance, which it's not. So you're just writing a fact into law to clarify the current statutes. And then it also had this... Um, this uh, this pilot program for the state's Medicaid program, which something similar in Michigan is proje projected to potentially save billions of dollars. So it's a real bummer that that's not going to make it through. Yeah. yeah, it is. And I think that there's a good deal of misinformation out there, but whatever happened behind the scenes is just simply not going to make it. Now, there is another free market bill that is, and it's often known as the preemption bill. Bill, you brought it up before. Uh, it, basically, we have described it, and others have described it, as a legislation that would end the patchwork of all kinds of different rules and regulations regarding uh, labor or employment policy around the state. What happens in Madison is not necessarily what happens in Wausau or La Crosse, and it's just as confusing as it can be and very expensive and regulatory-laden. And this was a bill that there was some uncertainty about. Well, there, that, were, there were some holdout senators, and now it appears that constituents have made some serious calls and said, this is important to us, reform this system. Well, there's, you know, for as confusing as the current system is now, the Democrats are doing their utmost to make the communication about this bill as confusing as possible, too. Yeah. So, I mean, there was so many misinformation, like narratives going on out there. They had people convinced that... 
if this law passed, that local governments wouldn't be able to fire uh, people that commit sexual assaults in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously that's not true, but clearly the Democrats were able to play off some fears and, you know, build some resistance to it. But yeah, it sounds like that's, uh, they were able to push that. My understanding is that the Restaurant Association got on the phones and said uh, to some of these reluctant senators, hey, we have a real problem facing us in parts of this state where uh, one of the issues is you have these cities uh, around the state that have different um, scheduling laws for restaurant employees and those sorts of things. It makes it very difficult for these small businesses that are operating on paper-thin margins to deal with the, you know, the kind of consequences, the financial consequences that they push into these things. This is a this is a, a clear free market piece of legislation, and a lot of folks let lawmakers know about. Well, that. At the at the hearing that you and I went to, they, there were some restaurant uh, owners who who got up and spoke. And they talked about, in some other states, I think they cited the, the, the Twin Cities, that they're trying to do things as crazy as tell seasonal, you know, weather-dependent businesses like golf courses, you have to schedule your employees three weeks out. And while that sounds wonderful, hey, you're going to give your employees this degree of, uh, you know, f- stability, you just can't do that. You can't Anyone predict the weather Anyone who's worked food service out. knows that that's not how that works. Right, yeah, right, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Subject to change, right? To be determined. 16-year-old me working at Sonic knew that was impossible. <laughs> like, well, yeah. And in terms of this being a free market bill, too, I mean, you're, you know, there are a lot of small businesses. I mean, I know, two just in Rock County. I mean, you got the Edgerton Family Cafe, and uh, you, uh, you've got the... Um, there's a the Gray Brewery in Janesville. You know, two just family-owned businesses that are starting to grow, starting to expand. They've got each one. They've got a second location. The uh, um, Ray's Family Restaurant in Edgerton has a location now. Has just opened a location in Whitewater. Gray's has got one in Middleton. So, you know, you're starting to your your business finally doing well enough where you can expand. It's you know that that's one less hurdle that they're going to have to deal with. Exactly. And don't think that that restaurants and small businesses across the state are thinking about this. We often talk about the impacts of legislation after the fact. There are unintended and very much intended consequences of badly written legislation on the books. Now, this piece of reform legislation looks at that and says we need consistent policies across the state when it comes to human resources, employment laws, and that shouldn't be asking for too much. So this podcast is going to be uh, showing up in people's inboxes probably right about the time that the Senate starts its floor uh, debate tomorrow. So a little dangerous here, you know, where, you know, making predictions and stuff, but I no don't... more dangerous than your NCAA tournament of 64 bracket. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of like that in state politics. You could have a University of Maryland, Baltimore County come in and just mess it all up. But I feel confident in this number one seed, or this number 16 seed. (laughs) (laughs) Sales tax holiday uh, does not seem like uh, it's going to happen, so... Uh, Matt, I mean, you aren't going to be able to, you know, save those, you know, that 
you know, two and a half dollars on your kid's school supplies in August if you wait for that certain week. I suppose, but can I do a little plug for another piece of reform legislation that died on the vine before it even got to the assembly oh, this sure. year? Oh, sure. You know, if we could have minimum markup reform, I could save all the time, <laughs> not just on one particular holiday. But so, the bitterness tour from yours truly. Oh, you, you, you could so not only, on. you could save on, on a gas to get to the store, you could save on the prescription yeah. drugs. That's so, exactly so, right. So you mean to say that that compromise where, well, you know, parents, we won't give you minimum markup repeal, but we'll give you the sales tax holiday. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose that is the compromise. It's not working. Mm-hmm. It's not working in the Senate. I know that there were members of the Assembly, particularly the leadership, like this idea. And let's face it, saving uh, consumers, saving taxpayers is good no matter what. But what do you really get out of it uh, in the end? You know, there are other legislation, Ola, obviously, that we're watching, we're monitoring tax legislation that made it through the assembly, but uh, the sales tax doesn't have a chance. Let's talk right. about the ones that, that uh, very much could be successful, more than likely will be successful moving through the Senate. What about uh, the child care, uh, excuse me, the child credit? Uh, that was a huge issue, of course, proposed by the governor, right. taken up by the assembly. And then, right. of course, we have something that doesn't get a lot of headlines, not a lot of attention, but the conformity of the, the changes at the federal level in tax mm-hmm. law and making Wisconsin conform to that could save taxpayers a lot of money in the end. That's right. Yeah, those we definitely and this, this is another case where I'm really interested to see how all of this plays out because when the assembly passed their tax plans, they packaged the child tax rebate and the sales tax holiday together in one piece of legislation. The tax conformity bill was passed as an amendment to another piece of legislation. So by all measures, we do think that that tax conformity bill, that's good to go, that that should be fine. They want to get this done. On the other side, we know that the Senate is not crazy about that sales tax holiday. They do want to get the tax rebate done. But the question is now, how do they do it? Where do they put it so that the assembly goes through and and basically votes that through again, right? Something tells me that there are members of the assembly leadership who would be glad to tell Senate leadership where they can put it. (laughs) (laughs) So So, (laughs) just a a quick question of of process. Um, I mean, there's so many process (laughs) components to this, but so the assembly passed the, both the, the sales tax holiday and the $100 child tax credit. Mm-hmm. The Senate's not interested in passing that. Mm-hmm. They only want the $100 child tax credit. So right. if they don't pass the same bill the, the Assembly passed, right. it has to go back to the Assembly, in which case it goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because the Assembly says, we're done. We're done, yeah. And so even though the Assembly has said, as far as these special session bills go, they want to go through the process and they want to get on the floor perhaps as early as late this week. We don't have a day or a schedule yet, but we're expecting them to come back uh, later this week. And they've said, I believe uh, you spoke to uh, Representative Steinecke on the radio and he talked about this. He said, we're coming back, but we're not touching any other regular session stuff, which they've said in the past, of Mm -hmm. course. Uh, everything is subject to change, but right. but uh, Assembly Majority Leader Jim Steinecke, Republican from Kokana, was very clear about that. One, they were going to come back special session as the governor ordered. Um, they were going to take up the uh, school safety measures, mm-hmm. and they were pretty much going to follow what uh, the governor was sure. was was uh, seeking in terms of his uh, six seven different proposals. Sure. 
but they were not going to do anything extra. And so that creates potentially a real process problem mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if legislation passes in the Senate that's fresh or it's different, there's an amendment to it, it's not a clean bill, you know, it, it's got to go back to the Assembly. And the Assembly has yeah. shown no interest in coming back for other than what it needs to, to deal with, which right. is the school safety bill. And this is something we've been running into, it feels like, every couple months pretty regularly. I mean, this is exactly how the last of the budget process went last year. Um, mm. It's something that we saw at the end of the first special session <laughs> before this terrible shooting happened, and, and the governor asked the legislature to come back to work on the second package. So it's kind of it's an issue that they keep coming up against. Um, pretty interesting stuff. And a case where you had mentioned legislation dying on the vine. In some cases, it looks like that same piece of legislation that you were thinking about may have actually died on the beer pong table. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And, and maybe some tailgaters having some problems That's out there, right. too. right. And in that situation, that was a bill that would have allowed uh, vineyards to stay open until, I believe, midnight, as mm-hmm. opposed to closing at 9 o'clock, as they're required to do so now, allowing vineyards around the state to host uh, weddings and all sorts of other wonderful events like that. But... The understanding is a last-minute amendment that went through and passed on the assembly floor would have effectively made illegal tailgates. And that is something that uh, the vast majority of folks in Wisconsin, I'm sure, would express concern about. Certainly the Senate did. So. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, that's where, uh, that's where the Republicans lose the assembly. Representative Matt Kittle, you know. Well, let's not spread any nasty rumors out there for both Matt Kittle and the constituents he may serve. Well, you think about the commercials right themselves, though. You know, you got a bunch of Brewers fans just standing around a tailgate all excited. Hey, hey guys, do you know who didn't think that you should be out here right now? Yes. (laughs) Representative Matt Kittle voted to ban tailgating. I can't survive these attack ads. (laughs) But you're... but you're right. I mean, that, and, and this was another thing, wasn't it? This is another one of those kind of issues where you kind of shake your head. We followed this legislature and this, this session for, it seems like, uh, a thousand years yeah. now. But you so have an amendment. Close, and then... Yeah, you have an amendment to a clean bill that would simply expand winery hours, as you said, from 9 o'clock until midnight. Then they put something that the Tavern League wants on it, and the, and the Tavern League is all of a sudden asking for protections against one thing. It turns out, oh, my God, this could kill tailgating at Badger games and Packer games. This isn't just a poison pill. It's like a, you know, a giant drum of, uh, you know, fertilizer or something. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's definitely guaranteed. One way to kill a bill in the state of Wisconsin. So that bill is done. That bill is done. So after the Senate's all, all done with, uh, with their business on the floor, then we've got the Assembly special session, which could also potentially lead to a Senate special session. It could, but the Senate doesn't sound much interested in mm. coming back after this, too. It sounds like everybody mm. wants to get out in the old campaign trail, but it just seems like there's just too much unfinished business. We talked about the winery bill, this amendment. Now, that may not be going anywhere, but there's some real key legislation here that I'm sure the vast majority of Republicans want to get to based on their need to go out on the campaign trail. Well, right. you know, and it's really unique, too, just a completely different approach is between Washington and Madison. I mean, obviously, the Republicans in Washington are equally afraid as the Republicans in Madison. But 
So they're planning on just stacking their calendar for the rest of the year. It's like every single week they're going to be trying to be out there proving to the American people that they're getting things done in Washington. So this Because this, they haven't gotten anything done in so long. <laughs> I guess they're making up for lost time. We'll see what happens. Like we said at the very outset of this conversation, Tuesday expects to be an extremely long day in the Senate on what will turn out to be a long week, uh, legislatively speaking. It's a long day, uh, long day, lo- long week last week with so many activities going on. It was uh, a shame that everybody was on his deathbed. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, a special session is going to be about student, about uh, school safety and, you know, guns. How, I don't know. Nobody really knows exactly how they're going to approach it here. But uh, last week we had uh, students from around Madison who uh, descended on the Capitol to uh, present their, uh, their point of view on this. Ban gun, you know, yeah. a lot of new gun control. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was out in the middle of the crowd uh, for a while. And, you know, it grew to a couple thousand people. So it was, you know, it was a big crowd, but it definitely wasn't all students. You had university students, you had professors, you had young people, you had old people. Uh, yeah. and, and they were all basically pushing in the same direction, which was, you know, more gun control. Yes, and you have uh, young people, uh, many of them are, are very much, um, they're scared, they're frustrated, they're worried. And yeah. they have every right in the world to be. Uh, a lot of schools in this country are not safe places. But they're not safe places simply because, you know, some very sick human being can go in and do what a very sick human being did in Parkland, Florida. They're not safe places because there are lots of threats within our schools every day. And we've talked about school safety legislation that really didn't move too much in this session. You know, we, we, Ola, we've talked in the past about, you know, the great investigative work that Dan O'Donnell over at WISN did on right. his series Blood on the Blackboard. That's we right. have students who are disorderly and very violent, hurting teachers, hurting fellow students, and we've failed to, you know, do what we need to keep those schools safe on that front. Yeah. Now we've got this push nationally because of, 17 lives lost, many of them lost in Parkland, Florida. But to say that politics isn't driving a lot of this, I believe, misses the point of the, sure. the current debate. Sure. Yeah. Well, it'll, it'll be an interesting debate. Heated, I am sure. I mean, even when, even before this entire tragedy, just watching the debate on going back to the the Teacher Protection Act, Mm -hmm. which was a bill that the assembly passed a very, very limited stripped down version of on their last day Mm -hmm. uh, on the assembly floor. That bill as originally written had 10 different provisions ranging from letting teachers break their contracts without penalty if they are uh, assaulted or, or violent or the target of violence in their own classroom somehow to being allowed to give a uh, remove a student from their classroom for up to two days without having to suspend that individual to a whole other slew of things right uh, to having more say in suspension hearings where right now teachers don't really get a say all sorts of different things that was passed down to just that very first bit that a teacher would be able to break a contract if they're hurt or targeted in that way. And actually, just going back very quickly, that's something that the Senate didn't touch either. So we'll see if that, I don't see it on the calendar right now, but we'll see if that makes it up tomorrow. 
Uh, I doubt it is is my safe prediction there. But this these kinds of things actually also tie into our next segment, the education results for this year. And some of those numbers we're seeing for dropout rates, suspension rates, all tie back to this uh, uh, Dear Colleague letter by Holder and uh, the Obama administration's DOE. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, if, if our listeners aren't familiar with this already, this was a letter sent out by the Department of Education underneath uh, uh, the Obama administration that basically told, quote unquote, told uh, schools and school districts that they need to lower their suspension rates uh, for fear that there were racial disparities in them, that certain kids, certain demographics were being targeted more than others. at the risk of losing federal funding. So what did we see, which Dan O'Donnell brilliantly reported on in his report, ever since that happened, you saw those suspension rates fall, but they were completely fake falls. They All, all of those numbers were just those calls not getting reported in. Yeah. Or for example, he talked about an example where a principal actually canceled a 911 call as yeah. some security guard was getting assaulted because they don't want to register those types of numbers. So in a lot of ways, some of this stuff is connected. Kind of, it is kind of very much connected. You know, the big walkout that we had in Madison and across the country last week was this whole notion that the kids are driving this. This is this organic, you know, movement. Kids sure. just wanting changes. They want more gun control and these sorts of things. But what we have failed to do in this country is pass the very common sense legislation. And then the laws that we have on the books, we've refused to follow them. We had policies in our schools for years to separate disorderly, disruptive, violent students out of the class, to protect our teachers, to protect our students. And we had policies like this from Eric Holder, uh, the Justice Department, the Obama administration that diluted those things. So there's a lot of cleanup we have to do just to make schools safe. And we have to deal with realistically protecting our kids. And I think we can do that. That's our top concern without gutting basic principle rights in this country. Well, and I mean, this is this is all about, you know, a political messaging hijacking, you know, what's really going on here. I mean, honestly, if you're if, if these kids really wanted to get engaged and try to really make a difference in their school districts, they should have gone, you know, they should have gone to the school board meetings. You have a lot more impact locally going to the local school board meeting. Hey, Board of Education, what are you doing to keep us students st- safe in your in our district? Rather than, you know, just putting on this big show here at the Capitol. Or- yeah, but CNN and MSNBC and the rest of the networks out there are more than willing to take all of these kids in with their different points of views. And again, I want to point out the fact that they're right to be frightened, they're right to be scared, but we cannot take the opinions and viewpoints of, you know, 16, 17-year-old kids as gospel as if they cannot be criticized (laughs) or said, listen, great point, but here are some facts that you need to know about. Like, for instance, the the kid, the 19-year-old that did all this damage in Florida, the FBI had how many dozens of, of incident reports on this kid? Really serious stuff. How many times did the school district try to deal with this kid or not deal with this kid until we can get really realistic right. Right. about keeping our kids safe. Right. 
Uh, it is irresponsible of the mainstream media to make this whole effort, this whole campaign going on in their full pursuit of gun control policies, gun control policies that will not keep our kids any safer. Well, gun control policies, too, are just, uh, you know, they're saying, put your faith in us, the government, the law enforcers, and that's the solution. We're going to ban this kind of gun. We're going to ban that kind of magazine. And when we saw government failure after government when, failure in this exact case and in that Florida. Is, that's exactly what the Parkland uh, story is, is, is a story of government failure in the face of somebody who was very clearly disturbed. Yeah. Everybody knew it. And uh, you have a, the sheriff's failure, the school itself fail, failed, FBI. So put your faith in the people who failed you to uh, come up with new controls on your rights. Well, that's, what the, that's what they're asking you to do. I, I would just like to say, I mean, Matt, I mean, you know, you're right. These kids are afraid. And I would just like to, you know, I'd like to close by just saying, you know, shame on the adults who organize these things. This is not a way to actually get a solution. This is, this is all about these adults trying to forward their own political agenda and using kids to do it. I didn't see one sign that called for something like a gun violence restraining order, which is a very unsexy sounding mm-hmm. but very realistic you know, individualized policy idea but, that could get the guns out of the hands of people who, whose family says but, they're violent. But, a lot but, of this, unfortunately, is, into, is about yeah. politics. It's it is right. about control. It is right. about power. <clears throat> and shame, as you said, Bill, shame on these adults for putting their political interests, their power interests, their ambitions above really, truly securing our schools. Yeah. All right, next issue. <laughs> Ola, did you want to talk more about the education results or were you yes, just okay? Yes, I have so much to say on education. All right, go for it. I have a lot of things to say on education that has nothing to do with politics. It oh, has it all had to do with everything. policy and numbers and data and research. <laughs> yeah. So and the big numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie. Sometimes they lie, unfortunately. So big education data released this month, teaching us more about the class of 2017. Now, this data included new graduation rates, average ACT scores, average ACT Aspire scores, attendance, dropout rates, and post-secondary enrollment rates, all for the class of 2017. We also have enrollment numbers for the current school year. So I know that's a mouthful, but it really, it it was a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really could talk about these results for a good hour or more, as all of you gentlemen know. Uh, But for (laughs) our podcast, I'm just going to stick to the basics and encourage our listeners to check out the two reports we put up on our website, www.mciverinstitute.com. Overall, I will say that if you were hoping for stunning improvements especially given the historic increase in funding to K-12 schools, this is not the data release you are looking for. Hmm. Now, first and foremost, the the four-year graduation rate went up a tick from 88.2% to 88.6%. That is one of the highest in the country. Uh, That's something to celebrate. And as more students are graduating on time, the percent of students who drop out stayed flat statewide at 1.5% compared to last year. 
Moving on to exams, the data release also includes the average scores uh, of all the ACT exams taken by the class of 2017. For our older listeners, the ACT is the test that you apply to college with. <laughs> I don't know what well, back in my is. day, we used to take the ACT. We, we, we took the SAT in my day, but... Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Oh, we took both. My day, my day goes back farther than yours, and we were, we were doing the ACT at that Yeah, time. SAT these days, SAT is more for, uh, for East Coast schools, schools around this area tend to look at the ACT more. So Yeah, Bill, this, that whole Harvard thing didn't work out. For <laughs> so this class, uh, they were about on par with the class before them with participation rates way up at 92%. That is awesome compared to other uh, states. That's really, really high. And the composite score was 20.3 out of 36. Both of those figures are the same as last year. Scores in English, math, and writing were all also the same as last year. Um, so not, not much exciting stuff there, to be honest. However, students are now also taking the ACT Aspire, which is an exam new to me, uh, also known as kind of the pre-ACT. This is in the same suite of exams. Freshmen and sophomores take it uh, as a way to kind of get used to that setup, that test before they take the real one. Uh, they are doing worse on that exam. Mm. Uh, it's the third year, I believe, right. that students in Wisconsin took it. Every year they've done worse than the last. So, but you, you good news. I, I, so, you know, that's that's my first impression. You just kind of set it up a little bit, though, where it's like they've never seen this test before. Sure. So maybe there's jitters that they're working out. Or? Yeah, yeah, and that could be likely, especially seeing that the average score for the full-fledged ACT is staying flat ish up yeah. a little bit in certain areas down a little bit in certain areas maybe you're right that is just getting out those jitters yeah, build the optimist uh, getting here. getting used to yeah right i'm not, I'm not used to this <laughs> i'm just being devil's advocate i know i know can i say that's um, not trademarked or anything no i don't think so i okay, think you can good. do that i think as your attorney i can say you can do that <laughs> um so moving on to to kind of issue areas of the data where we saw more clear-cut trends AP scores. This was one of my favorite parts of the data, if such a thing exists. Um, <laughs> participation is up. And again, AP scores, that stands for advanced placement. These are generally college, almost college level courses. About one year in high school will equal about one semester of a college class. So these um, are the real high achieving kids exactly. who are these, on These to are basically, these are the toughest class other than IB, but we don't, we don't track those systematically right now, at least to my knowledge. Uh, so AP classes are, they're not only a great way to learn how to study. I mean, I know for me, I was a high achieving student all throughout school. My AP classes, junior year of high school were the very first time I literally had to sit down and learn how to study because mm. I had never had to do that before. Yeah, it came right. naturally to me. So you get those skills, but then at the very end, you get an opportunity for 60 bucks, if the price is still the same, uh, to take that AP exam. And if you get, a, it's out of five, if you get a three or better, you generally get college credits. Mm. So the University of Wisconsin and Madison, for example, gives three credits or more for almost any three you get on any exam. So that is literal thousands of dollars of savings. Um, it's it's very significant. Unless so, you're exceptionally un, uh, undecided, as I was, and I still came That in. was your major, exceptionally <laughs> undecided. <laughs> sure. Took, took a lot of AP classes and still took five and a half years. There are two, there are two elements of the latest the latest numbers that I think are just absolutely fascinating. I want to get your thoughts on the trend lines here. The one is you see participation in uh, ACT testing up slightly, correct? 
slightly. ACT testing? Yeah. Uh, it's about equal to last year. About equal to last year, mm-hmm. but now we we are paying for this test as a state. Mm-hmm. We paid for it last year too, though. But wouldn't you think that the numbers would be up? More people taking, more students taking advantage of it. The other thing that ties into to all of that is higher education, that uh, college enrollment in this um, sector of students over the last several years Mm -hmm. has dropped Mm -hmm. precipitously. Mm -hmm. And I think that has something to do with value recognition, value concerns, all of these sorts of things. Yeah. So I, you caught me in a bit of fake news there. I lied when I said the AP part was my favorite part of the data. It's actually (laughs) the the college enrollment part. That was a, that, that was a very striking trend. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So So while we see, to wrap up the AP part, while we see we have more kids taking AP exams year over year, that percent, it's still just at like 16.5% of Wisconsin students are taking AP exams, still very, very low, but that percent has grown by a solid percent every single year for the last three years. You also see the actual scores kids are getting increase too. So That means the students who are thinking about college are thinking seriously about it. And they're not just taking challenging courses that will prepare them for university, but they're also taking an exam that has very serious payout. Now, at the same time, fewer kids are choosing to enroll in college and other formal schooling. Of 2017 high school graduates, 55% right now are enrolled in a post-secondary institution compared to 71 percent of 2013 high school graduates now of course that 55 percent is going to tick up a little bit as kids who decide to enroll after a gap year or two something like that so that change is not as dramatic if you consider only immediate enrollment all the way through but it does still stand so this is something that i spend a lot of time thinking about Um, When I was growing up, and certainly when everyone here around the table was growing up, the thinking was that you go to the best college you get into, the salary you will get upon graduation will more than likely make the cost of college worth it. That advice, go to the best college you can go to, don't worry, you'll be be able to pay it off, that changed literally within my lifetime as tuition has skyrocketed. Now, we can wax poetic all day long on why that happened, why the price of college has skyrocketed. If you ask me, it has a lot to do with government meddling in in the loan industry, Um, but that's a a rant for another day. (laughs) The point is that young adults are making different choices today than they did just a couple years ago. I think it comes down to a lot of different things. College one is way more expensive. The job market is way better. That influences those, uh, their decisions. And I think, of course, it is a good thing to have a well-educated populace. Um, you know, in general, still that notion does still stand. Higher degrees of education will lead to higher salaries down the road. But you cannot deny that that calculus has changed fundamentally. And we see that in the data. And I think more and more students, quite frankly, are getting their general requirement credits at community colleges and those sorts of places. Then they may go on to four-year colleges. But there is a cost quotient here, obviously. And to your other point, I enrolled in any college that would have me. Not the best one that would have me. 
any college that would have me. And then I got a job in radio broadcasting, which indeed was commiserate to that college. Have you repaid those loans back yet? You know, back back in my day, it was a buck fifty a semester. So yeah, yeah I almost have paid that back. <laughs> So much, much more to talk about here. I had a second piece after that last week where I looked at achievement gaps in Wisconsin. Historically, our state has one of the biggest, if not the biggest achievement gap within white and African-American students. In general, we saw those gaps shrink uh, slowly across the state with the gap in Madison uh, closing rather dramatically. That was one standout uh, data point, but we do still have a long way to go. I also took a deeper dive looking at Milwaukee, uh, Green Bay, and much more info on uh, Madison Metropolitan School District. So check it out. Lots to read there. Uh, MacIverInstitute.com. I won't bore you guys with my numbers more. Okay, well, now Matt's going to bore us about uh, Eric Holder. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for setting that up for me. I'm sure I Quite will. the segue. I, I, yeah. hope, I, I'm, I'm, I hope I exceed expectation. <laughs> I, I, I have four. It'll be about five minutes from now. What do you want to do? You, you, would you rather talk about Cynthia Nixon from <laughs> Sex and the City running for New York governor? We could hit that for a while, I guess. Now, let me focus on Eric Holder yeah. because there was obviously a great deal of hoopla in announcing that the former attorney general, the o Obama apostle, spent six years in uh, the Obama administration running the Justice Department, would be coming to Wisconsin last Thursday and Friday to campaign for liberal Supreme Court justice candidate, Milwaukee County Judge Rebecca Dallet. And you had all of this, oh, Eric Holder is coming. You saw, Chris, more than anybody, the social networks and all the tweeting and the golden memories of Eric Holder's oh, time yeah. as uh, attorney general. And I think that MacGyver was the only news source that realistically approached Eric Holder's real legacy, which is a legacy of just amazing, audacious abuse of the Constitution. This is a former attorney general who, along with his Department of Justice did everything to go through, go under, go around, to go by the Constitution. And I don't have enough time in this podcast to tell you all of the abuses, but I'll give you a highlight. He was the first and only in history attorney general who was held in contempt of Congress because he refused to turn over documentation on what was one of the most abusive investigations of all time, uh, an investigation that clearly broke the law, and that was fast and furious. It ended in the, in the death of at least one federal agent and the deaths of many countless uh, folks from Mexico and along the border because of this policy of trying to put dangerous weapons in the hands of dangerous people all under the guise or the premise of gun control. Right. Trying to, trying to gin up support for gun control. Trying to gin up uh, support for gun control. In one of the spectacular, spectacularly terrible uh, examples of bad judgment. If there in, was in ever, if there was ever uh, an incident... Uh, where the term epic fail fit, this would be it. But of course, that's not all. Eric Holder refused 
to assign a special counsel to investigate what we know was a horrible abuse by the Internal Revenue Service against right-of-center groups across this country. Just refused to do it. I talked to Hans von Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation, one of the great experts on constitutional law, particularly civil rights. This is a guy who literally, along with John Fund at National Review, wrote the book on Eric Holder. And they interviewed longtime Department of Justice uh, high-ranking officials. And one of those folks had said of Eric Holder that if anyone should not have been the attorney general. It is Eric Holder for his treatment of the Constitution, a guy who constantly put politics before the rule of law and before the Constitution. Well, let's not forget, this is a guy who used the Department of Justice to spy on journalists. You know, yeah. I mean, last week was Sunshine Week, right? Yeah. And, and here's a guy who withholds documents related to the Fast and Furious, who uses the DOJ and it's, it's the power of the government to spy on journalists and do all these other untoward things. And, and in the midst of Sunshine Week, this guy, who's the opposite of Sunshine, is here in Madison campaigning for a, a liberal who wants to be on the Supreme Court, who, by the way, at the, the Federal Society Forum, mourned the fact that the John Doe probe was shut down by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And the John Doe probe is right in line with the Eric Holder idea of justice in this country. And by the way, this is a former attorney general who used his office for a four-year ongoing nebulous investigation into the parental or school choice program in this state, left all kinds of parents and teachers and students in doubt, in fear about what would happen to their programs. This is a guy who constantly abused the Constitution. And one final point on Rebecca Dallet, uh, you know, saying, yeah, oh, come on in, Eric Holder, campaign for you. Uh, there's something to be said about the company we keep. And this is uh, a case that I think folks in Wisconsin ought to be thinking about. And Eric Holder made no bones about it when he campaigned for her. He talked to progressives and Democrats. They need to support someone who could be a true advocate for them. Not an advocate for the law, but an advocate for them, for partisans, for politicians, for politics. I hope that our podcast listeners and everybody in the state of Wisconsin will think about that when they think about Eric Holder's legacy and a Supreme Court justice candidate's call or acceptance of this guy campaigning but in a way, for He's the perfect person to campaign for a progressive who says they're going to use the government to advance whatever their political agenda is. They're going to use their position as a judge as to be sort of a super legislator. That's right. A king it, or a queen in robes. It raises a lot of concerns. We'll leave it at that. Well, now that our podcast listeners are feeling pretty low, I'll, I'm going to try to build them Bring back it up. up. Bring with, it up, buddy. With, one, uh, with a rare positive story. You say, yeah, Bill is just the beacon of optimism I, here today. I've got what a, happened? I am is there something <laughs> in the water? There's something I think about, it's the sweater. There's something about being in the in the cold woods of Fort McCoy all week. Oh, that warm the cockles of your heart, right? So, yeah, it can't get much worse than that. So all of a sudden I'm becoming more positive. Yeah. No, so I've got a positive news story about, of all agencies, a DOT. So, <laughs> now, where did you find this one? Yeah, Bill? where did you find this you one? You know, you just we just had to wait long enough. Mm. So 14 months ago we got the audit of the DOT just to set the stage. Terrible. 
I mean, they were $3 billion over budget on their major projects at the time. They were hemorrhaging over $40 million a year, pretty much essentially because of waste, fraud, and abuse. Mm -hmm. So I thought this was supposed to be positive news. He's getting there. I I feel it. I need need to pound you down before (laughs) I... Build you back up. That's the army right there, isn't it? I guess so. (laughs) So Dave Ross comes on board as the DOT secretary, and he says, I can do this with the people that are here, the people that have contributed to this disaster. I can take these people and I, I, I can turn them into a real a real positive force for this state. All I got to do is change the culture. And so that's, you know, organizational culture, that's like one of those buzz buzz terms that, you know, I'm sure a lot of people hear it and they roll their eyes. Well, let's face but, it. There were a lot of doubters. Yeah. A lot oh, of yeah. doubters. And, I mean, there's something to his concept of organizational culture because he went in and he started tinkering with, you know, um, you know, some big concept areas. He started challenging pretty much everybody on an individual basis. And suddenly the same staff that created all those, you know, t- tens of millions of dollars of waste every year are now turning out all these efficiencies and innovative money-saving ideas, uh, you know, just... Um, a general example is, you know, before, hey, that bridge won't carry the weight on that road anymore. Well, tear down that bridge. Well, now engineers are saying, well, you know what? There's a really simple modification we can make to that bridge. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just simple, you know, a, a simple shift in mentality like that, um, you know, over the past year, just on the highway program, they've saved over $60, 60 million. So, Things have really changed at the DOT. I think it's really impressive that they're doing it with the same people they had before. And it really goes to show you how, what, you know, a true leader can really accomplish with people. You know, make them start believing in themselves, get them excited about their jobs again. So, I mean, it, it's really a case study. And, I mean, I wrote, a, I wrote a short story about it last week for the website. And, I mean... Regrettably, it is, you know, kind of sure because it's like one of those things where, man, you could make this a feature, you know, what he's accomplished deserves like a feature article like in Ink Magazine or something. Mm-hmm. But the the fact that he was able to do it with such simple concepts just, you know, allows it to be a very concise story. So well, now you got the you got to it. You got to the uh, the uh, glass more than half full perspective. Let me get you the glass half empty question. Let me draw you back to the, the jaded report. No, seriously, what what does Ross's experience and the way he's able to to change the culture there, but what does that say about the last, the previous secretary of the Department of Transportation? Well, you know, I know, you know, so most most people, especially in Wisconsin, work for small businesses. So we, 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 we don't really understand what it's like to be a part of an enormous organization like the DOT is. But when you get into a big organization, and uh, especially as you start moving up on the, you know, the, leaders, the management and leadership there, it's um, real easy to get busy. You know, you could fill up your day with responding to emails, uh, attending meetings. It's... You know, just, you know, all these like scheduled events. So it could feel like you, you know, like if you have a great day, oh, wow, I accomplished so much today. But all you really accomplished was work. Mm -hmm. 
So busy work. Bu- yeah, busy, busy work. work. You mm-hmm. you might not realize it. You you might be so you know engaged in that busy work, you don't realize that you really aren't accomplishing anything of value. You know what that reminded me of? And, you remember when Carly, when when uh, Hillary Clinton was bragging about traveling X number of hundreds of thousands of miles as Secretary of State, and Carly Fiorina said, "Secretary Clinton traveling is an activity, not an accomplishment." <laughs> yeah. So that's that that immediately yeah. came to my mind. And you had a lot of great points about how Secretary Ross looked at the people at the department and said, "These are just people that need to be challenged. They, mm-hmm. We don't need to, you know, fire everybody or, or whatever." And and they've responded very well. And um, and they've they're just a, a year in. Yeah, and clean up your email account is not innovative. No, so I mean, what what Ross has done is, you know, he's set goals and standards, and he hasn't allowed that daily grind to lose. He hasn't allowed himself to lose sight of those goals and standards. Mm-hmm. You know, throughout the daily grind, and he continues to push people towards those goals. And de- the idea is, you got to develop your people to accomplish those goals. You can't accomplish those goals by yourself. That's you know the, one of the basic concepts of leadership there. Right. And again, just for those listening at home who may be confused about the current Secretary of State, he is not the guy who brought you the happy trees on public television. <laughs> it's a right. different guy altogether. I just mm. want to make sure that everyone's clear on that. Yeah, so, All right. yeah, I mean, I've everybody... just now learned that Dave Ross, not. Bob Ross. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. About that. But, but that said. I'm unsubscribing from the podcast. That said, D- Dave Ross could bring you a happy taxpayer, a much happier taxpayer, if he keeps doing what he's doing. That's right. Because right. that's, that's ultimately what's at stake here. We saw that audit. We saw $40 million of money, your money, just go right out the door. Uh, it's time that that agency and its agency head take responsibility and do what is right by the taxpayer. Not what's right by the road builder, not what's right by the legislator, what's right by the taxpayer. Yes. And you can and tell the mark, the, uh, I just want to, oh, sure. as someone who studied HR for my undergrad, the mark of a good leader is someone who, you know, he can come into a situation, he or she can come into a situation, take a, a, a group of people, of you know, lifetime bureaucrats, for example, at, at DOT, and get them on board with an entirely new way of thinking. That is turning water into wine. Yeah, I mean... If you can take lifetime... Think about that. People who expect to do things a certain way, right? That's, you know, and, you know, Chris alluded to it. You know, know, I've got that military experience. I've gone through... I've met a lot of, you know, people in leadership roles (laughs) throughout my military career. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can't... You know, it's very... It's very tough for me to think of a single leader that I've met, you know, throughout all my time in the military that has accomplished what Secretary Ross has. I mean, I, I am not kidding. I am not, you know, trying to, you know, blow things out of proportion. I mean, what he has accomplished as a leader truly deserves full credit. It is very unique what, it, what he's done. I mean, this is I, – I, I, I am clearly very impressed with – you know, with the results at the DOT, with what he's been able to do. He's clearly read Dale Carnegie and John Maxwell. <laughs> you know what? He could probably write his own book. Probably. Well, I'll tell you, it's a good piece, and I recommend you read it because it does tell you more than just what's going on at the DOT, but what goes on when managers are successful in managing and leading at the same time. There are a lot of managers out there. Yeah. But it takes a real different set of skills to be a leader to change a culture within a failed community. Yep. And so, Matt, bring us back down. Bring you back down. (laughs) Well, that's what I am. I'm old Debbie Downer here, aren't I? Well, interesting transportation analysis. 
But there are uh, the horror stories that we've been writing about and investigating for multiple years now at the troubled Toma VA Medical Center. I'm afraid to say it's not over. And, you know, you think about this, folks. It was three years ago, January, we first started seeing the stories of Candyland and the Candyman, the over-prescribing of painkillers and opioids to a deadly level at the Toma VA Medical Center. And, you know, there's been a lot made of folks like Senator Tammy Baldwin coming in and saving the day and pushing for reforms to make these places more responsive, safer places for veterans. Those ads are, are blanketing right now. And we're seeing it's all cause, fixed because it's all politics. Everything's fixed, right? Tammy Baldwin took care of the problem. That's not the case at all. Uh, we have reported in recent days on uh, lingering problems of an agency that not only could be compromising the health of its patients, its veterans, but also, speaking of Sunshine Week, last week, an agency that has been horrible about getting information and uh, getting the facts to reporters about what's really going on. But we've certainly heard from a number of people at the Toma VA Medical Center. And a gentleman in particular who comes to mind is Mark Fink, who is not only a veteran of the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, and a health care provider in these theaters of war, but also a health care provider in the VA system and at Toma. He's also a patient at Toma, a gentleman who went through all kinds of uh, horrors from you know traumas that he was dealing with from his past war experiences, his past experiences. And he learned firsthand as a caregiver there and then as a patient about the abuses that were going on and in some cases still going on. He, I had a chance to talk to both Mark and his uh, wife, Jean, in an interview on uh, News Talk 1130 WISN in Milwaukee. All right. Um, I started working there as a, as a staff nurse um, back in um, 2008, I believe it was. And when I first started working there, it took a little while, but things didn't seem right. They just, something just wasn't right. And the more I, I, I talked to other staff people, the more I could see it. And it just, the vets, when I would see them, were overdosed, not overdosed, that's not the right word. They weren't functioning the right way they would be because of the, the massive amounts of some of the meds they were on. Um, and then at and those were opioids mostly. The ones that I uh, experienced with were um, mental health medications. When I was um, there, I started off with just one medication, and eventually ended up with seven. Those and were, you, you um, became yeah you became a patient there. After yeah. a time, you were dealing with uh, some of the issues that came back to haunt you the p uh, the post uh, traumatic stress disorder issues, anxiety, all of these sorts of things. So you not only knew Toma uh, in two thousand eight as a caregiver, but then you became a veteran patient there as well. Correct. 
And then uh, tell me about those experiences. And, and first, of all, I guess I should ask you this: Did you you had seen already in 2008 some troubling signs? Uh, some of your patients who just didn't look all there looked like uh, they were basically taken over, possessed by the massive amount of prescription drugs that they were they were being given. All of a sudden, now you become a patient. What was your experience like? Um, my medication experience was with mental health meds. Um, the, the mental health meds that they started me on were mostly with the de- for dealing with the depression and the, um, the anxiety. There was no opioids that I was um, involved with, you know, directly. But the reason that the, the seven meds became an issue was because we started off on one and then eventually ended up on the seven over a period of time. And that, and the main reason for that is there was no other alternatives for therapy that were provided except for some magnetic resonance therapy that was provided because the medications weren't working. And that was pretty much the end of it. The meds weren't working. The southern magnetic resonance therapy wasn't working. So that was pretty much it. That's all they had to offer. And they and you had asked them, actually, as a caregiver at one point, and certainly as a patient, you said, isn't there anything else you could do? Because as you mentioned in your column, you know, they always talked about we're, we're treating these folks for chronic pain. And you said, and you're right, and medical experts know this. Chronic pain treatment is not just uh, point A to point B. There are all kinds of different ways to treat, and obviously we know a lot more now, and we should anyway, but we got to get away from prescription meds and painkillers and opioids, and we need to do, other, do these other approaches. What was their answer to you when you told them this as a healthcare professional and then as a patient? Um, I worked in the urgent care there, and we frequently got vets in um, on a daily basis for um, treatment for their chronic pain. And when we would do our nursing assessment and stuff, we would ask them, well, well what else are we doing for your, your pain management uh, besides just medications? And they said nothing. There was no other uh, regime that they had, no other possibility of a multifaceted, multidisciplinary pain management program that was available to them. There was nothing other than pain meds available. Gene, let me ask you this. Let me bring you in on the conversation. You're watching your husband uh, now becoming a patient and becoming a patient who is being prescribed and now based on doctor's orders taking more and more of these medications, up to seven. In fact, later on, a doctor in the private sector would say basically, oh my God, what are they doing to you? Seven of these antidepressant medications at one time. What was that like as someone who who loves her husband watching him go through uh, this experience? It was awful. I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. When I would question the doctors, I was told that I had to trust them, that they knew what they were doing. When I asked for, when I brought up we should get a second opinion, we know what we're doing. It got to the point where I wasn't even included in his care. They would leave me out of the picture totally. And, of course, Mark is having more and more problems, experiencing more and more problems. What do you do at that point? Just trust me 
isn't obviously working. You're still a concerned wife. Uh, you're still watching your husband struggle not only with anxiety and some of these other things, but now with the medicine that they're trying to use to help him, I guess. It had to get to the point where he did attempt suicide, and at that point I took control and his care was no longer given through the VA. That is the stark reality here, and that is really the 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 part of the story where you gasp. Because, Mark, if you wouldn't mind, tell me about when and, and where you got to in your mental state, having gone through the experience that, that, that you, you went through. Um, when did all of this occur, when you thought about taking your own life? Early January, um, early January of 20. 20- 15, uh, and that was after, you know, being on all those meds up to that point. And I was never given any other choices. I was never given any other options to, well, you know, we don't seem to be helping you, you know, let's try this or try that, go outside the VA to see if there's other avenues. I was never given that choice, never given that option, so that I wouldn't have gotten to that point, I think. I think if I would have had other alternatives, other choices outside of the VA, I don't think any of this would have happened. But what... As a, as a nurse, as a medical professional, I never could really understand suicide. I never could understand how somebody could get to that point where they could overcome the strongest, most powerful, deepest instinct that we have as human beings, every single one of us. What would drive somebody to, to go past that instinct for survival and to go on to take their own life? I never could understand that. Well, I do now. You get to a point where I always kind of envision it as being a, like a standing next to a black hole, where that black hole is just this bottomless dark pit that you just you just can't escape. And it's this overwhelming, unbelievable amount of, of hopelessness and fear and, uh, you know, realizing all of the failures you've had in your life and just about every negative kind of emotion you can think of, mm. you get gets to the point where it just overwhelms you, and you, whatever what you do, you can't fight it. So at some point, you just say, "Well, screw it. I'm gonna I'm gonna take care of this myself," and I did. And that's depression in a nutshell, and the anxiety that you experienced. And um, Gene, of course, you were the one who found Mark after he attempted to take his life uh, on uh, medications. I, am I correct? Correct. You can only imagine what that must have been like for you uh, and how scared you were. What happened next? When I found him, I guess they say the flight for fight response kicked in. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I had to try to keep him awake. And my daughter called 911. And we got him to the hospital here in Toma, and they said, we're going to give you a choice of where we're going to send him, either to the VA in Madison or to La Crosse. And I said, he's not going to Madison. I said, he is now going to be seen through the private sector. So I had him flown to La Crosse. And, and you that... can never prepare yourself for what you see. No, I, I can't imagine. But it seems to have made all the difference in the world, because let's go back here. You have, uh, Mark, you are struggling with, um, you know, some, some mental uh, health issues. They are made worse by the care that you had at Toma, these seven medications now. 
um, it, it seems like those seven medications only exacerbated everything, and you had gotten to a point of basically no return, I guess. Yes. They interacted with each other, the medications. And, the do- you know, and, this, and, uh, and I was aware of those medicines. I looked them up. My wife and I both did. We kind of looked them up, saw the side effects, saw, you know, all these other things that were, that were potentially, you know, bad things to happen. And we kind of questioned that at some times, and that was still, you know, you need to take these. And that was a matter of trust. We trusted mm-hmm. the, the doctors there to, to take care of us and take care of me. And that's basically what I lost, is that trust and that faith I had in them that they could guide me through this and get me through this period of my life, and it didn't work. I know there are some politics surrounding this whole issue, obviously. Uh, Tammy Baldwin's failure to respond, uh, the senator, uh, they can do all the commercials that they want about how Tammy Baldwin has been a great advocate for veterans and what have you, but the fact remains she did nothing in January of 2015. That's when the story of Candyland was breaking, and it wasn't long after that we found out that Tammy Baldwin and her staff had all kinds of information long before about the suffering of veterans there and what was going on with these prescription medications and did nothing. I know a group by the name of Concerned Veterans for America has been highlighting that fact uh, and showing just the failures of Tammy Baldwin. Uh, But I don't want to get too much into the, the politics with you. I really want to concentrate on your story, and I just have a minute left. What about today? Uh, what is happening there today? Because we keep hearing from VA administrators and Tammy Baldwin and other politicians, oh, we're making big inroads, we're making big strides here. The sense that I'm getting from veterans I talk to, from you and from others, is there's a long way to go to healing Toma VA Medical Center. Um, yes, I would uh, agree with that. The one thing I want to make really crystal clear, though, is when I mention the, and talk about the Toma VA I'm not including the nurses, the aides, the physical mm-hmm. therapists, all those other ancillary people that direct care of those vets. That, this does not include any of those people. They are dedicated, compassionate people that care for the vets. And if I had to be a patient there as a, as a patient, I, I would have faith in the nurses but not anything else. When I mentioned the VA, I mentioned the, the decision-makers there, the people, the, the doctors and the, and the higher-ups. My immediate supervisors and managers were extremely helpful, extremely understanding, and compassionate for my problems as a vet and as an employee. So I don't want to ever, ever have that included in there when I'm talking about the VA. But it, um, it, it's a the difficult pr- thing to, to, to still deal no, with. No, no, I, I understand, and that's what I've heard over and over again. There are a lot of dedicated people who work on the front lines of healthcare there. Uh, and they are the ones who were whistleblowers and tried to alert people like Senator Baldwin and other members of Congress, hey, there's a real problem here, and they were scoffed at or threatened or or worse. Some of them were fired for trying to help, trying to intervene. That's the real story of Toma. And I guess what I'm asking you uh, as we conclude here, are the problems still lingering at Toma? Is it not quite the pretty picture that administrators like to paint there no i don't believe so no i there's the va is, is a as a system of health care is antiquated it's, it's broke 
And Toma is just one place, one area that, that shows that. It's a system-wide problem that has to be fixed, period. End of story. Again, a fascinating story about a man who wants to drive home a message, whether it's this election season or not, it is time to fix this system for real and to move past this system. Um, Anyway, I I think uh, both Mark and Gene had a very compelling story to tell. Speaking of compelling stories, this is an interesting one we've been looking at here at MacGyver, a special investigation into what is no doubt a disorderly justice system, uh, a uh, court system, a county court system in Ozaki County. The latest information that we have tracked through open records requests and other sources show a real problem with the Ozaki County, not just the court system, but the, the county administrators um, deciding that they apparently didn't want to follow the law, the state law, when it came to family court services. Our latest MacGyver News Minute, which you can hear Tuesdays and Thursdays, three times a day on News Talk 1130 WISN, goes into this troubled Ozaki County court system. This is the MacGyver News Minute. Here's Matt Kittle. It's the case of the missing family court services budget in Ozaukee County. As MacGyver News Service found in a recent investigation, the county and its court system have failed to follow the law in providing funding for family court services such as legal custody and physical placement studies. More so, there appears to be no segregated fund where family court fees are kept, as required by state law. The county, it seems, doesn't want to pay for the services. county doesn't really have a choice. The law is the law, and the law says family court filing fees at 20 bucks a pop must be used to help defray the cost. Asked whether the county is not complying with the law, a county official said, that's a complicated question. The Ozaki County Court System is now the subject of a judicial investigation arising out of allegations of wrongdoing. Government agencies need to follow the laws. That's especially true of the judicial system. For the MacGyver News Minute, I'm Matt Kittle. For more free market news, log on to MacGyverInstitute.com. All right. Well, another uh, good investigation by Matt Kittle that you can find at MacIverInstitute.com. You can also find all our podcasts, and you can find links to all the podcast platforms on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud. Make sure you f- click one, click or subscribe on one, subscribe on all would be even preferable. And uh, follow us on Twitter at MacIverReport, at MacIverWisk, at NewsMacIver. And tell us what you thought about the the, the most recent show. What we, uh, if you have any podcast show topics, let us know. We'd be happy to integrate them for well, you. Well, we are rugged individualists. Uh, we are conservatives poised on following and advancing liberty. But in this case, it's okay to follow, right? It's okay to follow <laughs> the, the podcast. Well, if well you, you will. know, a good part a part of. Good leadership is also being a good follower. Be a leader in your local community. Didn't we learn this? To lead, one must follow, right? (laughs) That's right. Well, my MacGyver pals, that closes the books and yet another MacGyver report where you're extremely charming and good-looking and enlightened. MacGyver team brings you the week's biggest stories and our exacting insight. We'll be back, though, rest assured, next Tuesday. Don't you fear, little buddy, with what we (laughs) promise will be a life-changing podcast experience or at least a cure for your insomnia. Until then, 
This is Matt Kittle along with the good folks at Team MacGyver saying so long.